Hello and welcome to the Eastman's Predator Pros Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Nimnick. Great to be back on the mic with you guys for another episode. We are talking Africa, African dream hunt, African predators, African big dangerous five, whatever you want to call it. Um, got a gentleman by the name of Ryan Bassam on. Uh, Ryan is a booking agent, which means he uh, helps guys like you and me that are wanting to set up uh, a dream hunt to Africa. He helps us get with the right outfitters, the right uh, guide service over there to make sure you know that we get everything that we want out of that hunt. Um, but on the same token, Ryan's been to Africa quite a bit, actually, um, hunting various things, um, a lot of the dangerous game, some of the big cats, things like that. So so we're going to talk about some of those stories, um, the process of getting to Africa, kind of what's all entailed in, in booking one of these hunts and and paying for that, costs, all that kind of stuff. So should be pretty, pretty interesting. But uh, before we get going, hey, I want to thank you guys for listening as always, in making this the number one predator hunting podcast out there. Um, I love your feedback. You know, the feedback goes a long way um, for these sponsors and everybody that makes this this podcast uh, possible for you guys. Um, you know, so a five-star review on Spotify goes a long way. Leaving a review um, about how you like the podcast, what you love about it, um, sharing it on your uh, Instagram story when you're listening to it in the truck. You know, all those kind of things go a long way, man. So I uh, really appreciate all the support there. Hopefully we can keep this podcast coming for a long, long time. And, and like I said, we just couldn't do this without the sponsors. Um, a lot of time and effort goes into putting this together and producing it um, for you guys. So we can't do it without them. And, and you know, in and, and this episode, um, Cryptech is one of the sponsors. I'm excited. You know, Cryptech just launched a brand new website. Um, if you haven't uh, checked it out yet, get on there. It's cryptech.com. Check it out. Uh, you know their their website they had for a long time. Now they revamped it. Um, super easy navigation now. Um, you can see all the products. You know, for me, I wear the Highlander pattern. To me, that's the best probably open land coyote hunting pattern that they have. You know, lots of tans, browns, not a lot of blacks and darks to it. Um, it's just uh, I for me the country I hunt it blends in really really good. Um, but you know they offer early season kind of light weather stuff, late season cold weather stuff. Uh, you know, you want some of that snow camo you might see me wearing on the last stand or in some of my pictures. That's the Wraith pattern. Pretty cool snow covers uh, setup that they offer there. But uh, like I said, you're in the market for some new camo that's that's not going to break the bank. Um, go to their new website, cryptech.com, and see everything they have to offer. And then now also another sponsor of this episode, which is new, I'd like to welcome Silencer Central. Um, I'm excited about this one suppressors have, have been a big part of my coyote hunting game since 2008 that was when i got my first suppressor uh that whole suppressor market has came a long way in the last 15 years you know and silencer central is on the cutting edge uh, of what they're doing with just making it easy to get suppressors granted the worst part is the weight and that's none of us have control over that silencer central doesn't have control that's 100 the atf but the process up to that point now is made extremely simple. You know, Silencer Central, you can get on their website. You can order your suppressor. You can pay for your stamp. They'll even set up a free NFA gun trust for you, which is the way to go. And, uh, you know, they'll do your fingerprints. They'll do your picture. They'll do everything over the Internet, over their website, um, and you could submit it. And the best thing about it is once your paperwork all comes back approved from the, the ATF, they'll ship the suppressor straight to your door. Um, and that's just crazy to me because back the first suppressors I had, I had to go find a gun dealer 
you know, in my home state and I had to go down there. Then I had to go down to the police station and get the fingerprint cards. And, and it was kind of a pain, um, but they were all hoops I jumped through. Silence Central has made this process extremely simple. Um, and then they have a great line of suppressors as well. They have a, a variety to, of their Banish line of suppressors. Uh, their Banish Backcountry is their newest one that just came out. Super light. I know a lot of guys, you know, don't want a whole lot of weight hanging off their gun. Um, but uh, but yeah, man, it's all right there. So if you're in the market for a new suppressor, hopefully you maybe have one already. Maybe you're wanting to get another one. Maybe you're not in the game, which you're behind at this point. It's time to get in the game and get a suppressor. You can go over to their website, which is silencercentral.com, and check out how easy it is to get your hands on a suppressor. Well, Ryan, great to have me on the podcast, man. Thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it, brother. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Should be a lot of fun. <laughs> well, I know, uh, you know, obviously you're a friend of the Eastman's group, have been for a lot of years. You know, they, they kind of set me up with you. I'm always looking for new content, predator-related, um, you know, and it sounded like, you know, you've been to Africa quite a few times. Uh, have have dabbled in some predator stuff or, or, you know, went after some predators quite a, quite a few times, you know, big stuff. So that's kind of what I want to base this around. And, you know, and, and, and I want to first talk about your background a little bit and how you got into that. Um, because I think there's a lot of logistics stuff that you're probably pretty, you know, I would consider you am an expert on with, with what you do with the booking world and things like that, you know? So, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it can be, a different challenge for sure. When you start traveling overseas uh, for any kind of hunting adventure, uh, no matter where you go. And so, um, you know, most people, you know, logistically don't know how to travel out of the country without a firearm. And so enter a firearm into the equation. And then if it is a, um, a legal site species that you can import back into the country, if you wanted to do taxidermy or anything like that, that's a whole nother can of worms and, and, you know, logistics that have, have to be kind of worked through and and planned for um and it's it's not that it's impossible it's just um like i said a, a lot of planning and, and making sure eyes are dotted t's are crossed but i mean well worth yeah. it because the adventures out there are, are uh are some of the most epic things you could possibly do as a hunter heck yeah before we get into that because i really want to get into the specifics of that because i think to me that's probably yeah. when guys think about traveling in their minds, they're like, man, this is going to be a big pain. This is going to be a big, a big hassle because they just, they probably just don't understand. I mean, I don't even understand the process that it takes. So we'll get into that because I think that's an important piece of it. But before we do that, let, let's, let's hear a little bit about your background, man. How, um, you know, maybe sure. how'd you get into the, the hunting world, you know, where, where you're at right now, everything that's involved there. Sure. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So I think like um, a lot of people, you know, my dad introduced me to the outdoors. I grew up in Northeast Texas, um, you know, as far as predators are concerned, did a, did a little bit of uh, um, coyote hunting, uh, occasionally got lucky on a bobcat. The first uh, bobcat I ever, ever was able to shoot was actually with my bow while I was hunting whitetail. So that was kind of cool. No um, it's my first bow kill was a, was a bobcat. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, I grew up in Northeast Texas, um, kind of, uh, you know, grew up a bit of a dreamer, wanted to see the world and hunt all these crazy animals that, uh, that you come across. I'd go to the Texas trophy hunters extravaganza there in, in Dallas, Fort Worth and walk up and down every aisle as a kid. And just was like, wow, what are these animals? Where do you go to get these? And just kind of became obsessed with it. And, um, from a young age, I just fell in love with hunting. It's all I wanted to do, um, besides play baseball a little bit. <laughs> and then, um, you know, once once I got into college, I had an opportunity uh, to kind of work a, as an intern of sorts for a different booking agent. And um, I I was fortunate to travel a lot growing up. 
because my parents have owned and operated a travel agency up until about a year ago when they retired. And so they ran that business for 44 years. And so my exposure into the travel industry, um, I I just kind of grew up with it. And so uh, learning how and why you did certain things was just kind of became second nature in regards to travel. Um, And then pair that with the opportunity I had in college um, to uh, to work as as an intern and help host hunters to different countries just kind of made the whole concept of traveling to hunt a lot easier. Um, prior to that, I, uh, I served a mission for my church. I lived in Ecuador for two years down in South America. So um, again, I, I became numb to a lot of the things that might scare people when it comes to going into a third world country, living there, being with the people. I became fluent in Spanish. So early on um, as a booking agent, I spent a lot of time in Spanish speaking countries um, you know, hosting uh, clients down there. And so that, that was that side of, of my kind of introduction in, into hunting. But I've also on the business side, I've had the opportunity to, to work as a VP of marketing for Drake Waterfowl, um, as well as help run the marketing efforts over at Sitka Gear. And, and most recently, the last four years, I've been out on my own. Um, as an entrepreneur, I've, I've got ownership in a couple of different companies and, and still run the booking agency. And so I, I'm kind of a jack of all trades, it seems like. Um, but that's kind of been my my brief introduction and, yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know, navigation through through the industry. Yeah. You sparked my interest. You mentioned baseball. I mean, I'm big. That's what I do in the off season. I coach travel baseball nice. after a lot of years with my boys. You mentioned marketing. I have a degree in marketing. A lot of people don't know that, even though I, you know, hunt coyotes all the time. But <laughs> but yeah, man, that's uh, sure. that's cool parallels right there. No, absolutely. So my daughter actually. So I don't I don't have any boys. I've got two little girls, um, almost thirteen year old and a ten year old. And uh, my oldest, though, I mean, big into travel softball. Um, in fact, we leave tomorrow for another tournament down in California. I live in Montana, but we're we play all over. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. It's two, three weekends every month, and she's <laughs> she's hard at it. So I still get to kind of live vicariously through her, um, which is great. But uh, love the game, man. Gotta heck, love that game. Heck yeah. So so to back it up a little bit, one thing I always do with all my guests. Do you remember the first coyote you ever mm-hmm. killed? Whether it was called in, shot. Do you remember the story? Yeah. I got to. I, I always got to try to peel your story out of you. I love it. Now let's do it. So um, I remember I was probably about thirteen when my dad started to kind of let me go out on my own a little bit um, and and not be there right by him the whole time. And so I he got he had me out in the woods by the time I was six. And so he let me go. I was probably 13 and I went to a back part of our property there in Northeast Texas and I was hunting deer. And, um, you know, he and my uncles had always told me, Hey, if, if you see a coyote, shoot it. Um, you know, we're trying to manage turkey population numbers. And for those nesting birds, you, you want to make sure you're taking care oh, of your predators. Sure. And so long story short, yeah. Um, I was set up in a, in an area where, you know, we'd, we'd seen some pretty good deer movement and I knew there were some coyotes there and, uh, um, I just remember kind of sitting there and, and out of nowhere, this thing just pops up and he's making his way like down this, this hay meadow and hits the tree line and then starts working his back, his way back up to me. And, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of one of those things where I was like conflicted, honestly, you know, cause <laughs> I was 13 and I love dogs. Yeah. And so yeah. the first coyote I killed, I was kind of like, ah, but my, my dad, and my uncle said, I have to do this. And so, um, <laughs> So yeah, af- after the shot though, I was pretty stoked and, and, uh, it was, it was kind of a cool experience. It kind of, it was, it was opening my, my mind up more to, 
to hunting other things outside of just ducks and deer at that point in my life. And so it it made it a lot easier to, to go after these other species around the world after, I think. What kind of rifle did you shoot it with? Remember? Um, Yeah, I do. It's yep. That I had one gun up until I was about 18. It was a a Remington 30-06 that had been passed down from my grandpa to my dad, to me. And I've still got that gun, of course. So (laughs) Had like an old crappy Tasco scope on it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, there was there was quite the exit on that one. (laughs) But I still have that gun, no doubt. That's awesome. Heck yeah. So, how long has it been since you you know started making trips to Africa? I've been going for probably a decade now. Um, You know, again, like I mentioned, as a kid, I there was just some sort of fascination and allure about um, that continent. You know, uh, there's, there's a lot of sayings like, you know, in Africa, it pretty much everything can bite, scratch, scrape, kill you. And for some twisted reason that made me that more excited to go and and see this crazy place. Um, Just a lot of mystery around that continent, the cultures there, the food there, so many different species. And so, um, I've been going for about 10 years and I bet I haven't even scratched the surface. I've been to four countries within Africa, but multiple times because of how many species are there going to a a new country in Africa um, here in a month. I go to Uganda, Um, might do a little bit of leopard hunting there. We'll, we'll see. Um, But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pretty magical place. There there's nowhere else like it in the world, in my opinion, because even with with coyotes um, and and some other big cats, like if you start going to these other continents and different countries outside of Africa, a lot of it does kind of look and feel the same as the reality, which is great because of that familiarity. But if you want something truly different, Africa as a whole, there's there's nowhere else like it. It's just its own special place. So walk me through walk me through a booking agent. I, you know, I've heard that term sure i guess i don't really specifically know what it is i'm sure somebody listening to this might be interested to find out exactly how you know what are the advantages of of going through a booking agent you know how all that works with when you're dealing with these these outfitters and operations out across the the ocean somewhere yeah totally um i think that what i've learned in the last almost 10 years of doing this now you have two different kinds of hunters um when it comes to hunt bookings, you know, uh, don't get me wrong. I love to DIY just like everybody else, but there's certain places you can't go without a, a licensed guide or outfitter. And so some guys like to go and book direct. I think that's great. If they want, they want to do the legwork and vet the guys that they're going to go and hunt with. Um, a lot of my clients, they don't have time, man. Um, I, I, I deal with some high wealth individuals and they are looking to build trust with one individual like myself, mm-hmm. where they can say, Hey, this is my budget. This is what I'm looking to do. Um, can you help me find the right outfitter to, to go and pursue this particular species um, and, and help me get it set up and help me with all the planning logistics, the travel, et cetera, et cetera. And so what I do as a booking agent is um, I work with individuals that don't want to put in the legwork. They'd rather hit that easy button. Just say, Hey, I trust you. Um, they know that all the, the outfitters that I book for, I've been with and hunted with them. I think some booking agencies get a bad rap because um, they're they're selling whatever they can, whether they've been there or not. Oh, sure. uh, I hate that. I don't have to. I don't have to do that. I'm a booking agent because it's fun for me. It's not how I make my living. It's just 
something that I'm obsessed with doing. And so um, I basically go hunt with the outfitter. Uh, sometimes I'll take an initial group with me once we've established that relationship and I understand uh, their hunt and how it's going to be ran. Um, it makes it a lot easier for me to go to a client and with confidence say, hey, this is this is it. This is this is exactly how we need to fly there because you're taking a firearm and there's certain ports that you can't get into. There's certain countries you can't connect through with a firearm. And so we help logistically with that side of it. We make sure all the paperwork is done with the local police at that country, um, as well as at the airport there. Uh, make sure they know ahead of time that we're coming in with firearms. And then we make sure that they have the right transportation once in country with that outfitter and, and can tell them exactly who's picking them up, um, where they're going what the thread count is on the sheets or how crappy their sleeping bag is going to be <laughs> um, depending on what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we just kind of go, go from there. And, and typically we've got like an option, like a list of options. And so like, if you wanted to go hunt leopard, for example, in Africa, that seemed to be a, a pretty popular one right now. Um, there's different ways you can go about doing that. Some of those animals and some leopards in some countries, you cannot get an export permit for right now. And so making sure your clients are aware of that, you can hunt them there, but you can't bring it back if you wanted it. Um, you know, there's only a couple of countries where you can hunt leopards with, with dogs. So if you want to run dogs, there's only a couple options there. And so we just go through all of those different options to make sure that what, whatever their expectation is, I want to exceed it. And so we go through those lists of questions and planning to make sure that they have the best experience possible. And then that all sounds good and great, but then how do you get them back and, and make sure if they do, if they are bringing a trophy home, how they get the trophy back. And so that part of the process, um, once they are successful on a hunt, um, is making sure that there is a local taxidermist in that country who can do all of the um, dip, pack, and prep and get that to an exporter. The exporter then has to export it out of that country find a U.S. importer that can receive it here in the U.S. And then from there, it has to go to a USDA taxidermist. And so that's typically the full process of all of it. Um, a lot of people ask, well, are you just killing these animals for the sake of killing them or are they being eaten? Um, I've had African lion, kind of like mountain lion here in the U.S. It tastes pretty good. It's not bad. Um, definitely eating worse things over there. So, um, so yeah, I mean, there's always a plan for for what we're going to do with that animal. And most clients have these questions. And so that's why I like to cover them. Um, but that's, you know, kind of the cliff note version of, of what that process looks like. What I do as a booking agent and trying to make sure that everybody's expectations are met. And that I say, if I'm not there personally, I stay in contact with them and their pH over in Africa while they're there to make sure everything's going well from day to day. How hard is it to become a booking agent? I mean, it's, this sounds like a dream job. I'm, I'm assuming that I'm assuming that when you say you're going on these hunts, that you're they're they're bringing you over, comping it, you know, discounted to some extent, correct? Yeah. So I mean, as essentially, sometimes you're getting to go. It, it, it depends. It, depends. it really does depend. Um, it's different. Yeah, the economics with different outfitters in different countries. Um, yeah, sometimes depending on the country and the economics of, of how things work with the local government there, sure. They're, they're usually comping my days because I'm there kind of as, as extra help to the outfitter. You bet, um, yeah. I'm rolling up my sleeves and doing whatever I can to make it a positive experience. So yeah, yeah. I'm not having to pay for bed nights and food. Um, and if I start pulling the trigger, man, yeah, I mean, just like everybody else, there's government quotas in most of these countries in Africa and, and other countries too in Asia. And so um, there's a quota. They have to buy the, the permits from the government quota to use at their 
you know, wherever they are allowed to hunt. Some of that's private, some of it's public. It looks very different in the international uh, scene versus what we have built here in the United States. Um, that would be like a trophy. So, when you see trophy fee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Now, now certain places like Tanzania, for example, or even Uganda, where I'm about to go, um, before you ever get there, you're having to pay a government fee for the amount of days you're hunting. And there's a minimum number of days. So like in Tanzania, you're going for 10 days and you're paying a, at least 18, 19 grand before you ever put a piece of clothing in the bag to get over there, oh, period, wow. end of story. Now, once you start pulling the trigger, that's where the trophy fees start to kick in. But you've had to pay for the days from the government and the permits on that entire um, tag, if you will, for that trip. And that's just kind of, that's the way the government can help manage the species there within those given concessions, as well as how they fund their anti-poaching teams. No, that's great. So, so back to the booking agent thing, like, like how many booking yeah. agents are there in the United States? Would you say like thousands? Oh gosh, that's a good question. And, and you brought up a good, you know, a good question earlier too. How do you become a booking agent? Man, I, it was dumb luck for me. Um, I, I was lucky in that I have a couple of particular skill sets and I came from a background of being in the travel agency because of my parents. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I didn't set out to become a booking agent at all. I'm just a guy like <laughs> most other guys that's obsessed with hunting. Yeah. <laughs> and um, the more like right as social media got started, um, I started, I, I love photography just as a hobby. And so I started posting some of my pictures that helped garner a rather large following on Instagram for myself. And then people were seeing all these places I was going to. And they're like, dude, like, I want to go do that. Like, wh who did you go with? And I'd be, oh, I went with so-and-so. It was great. And then I'd be like, if you need help booking your trip, you know, I can put you in touch with, with um, my family's business on the travel agency side. We'll make sure you get over there easily and, and without any issues. Well, that just kind of continued to happen until I was like, okay, like now I've got outfitters that are requesting that I help set groups up for them. Um, they wanted to use our travel agency exclusively, et cetera. And so it got to the point to where I was like, all right, this is turning into more of a side business than I anticipated. And, and, you know, um, I don't look at it as a way to make money. I look at it as a way to go and, and live out my dreams and adventures too, along with, with clients that have enough faith and trust in me to to go and and have a good time and and see some of this stuff happen but um so you know, well, i think if so somebody if wanted to become a booking agent oh go ahead oh yeah so if you're like me see i what i got from that was yeah see you're you're justifying it to your wife now hey i have to oh yeah there. I, i'm going question. over to work i'm going over to work honey it's work it's not me just Dude, jacking that's around <laughs> <laughs> that that's 100 it because yeah. now and even easier now because because i i I part owner in a couple of businesses in the hunting industry. And so I'm like, Oh, this is a content trip. You know, I've got, <laughs> I've got to go do this for work. Oh, um, yeah. I've got different sponsors that I have a contract with and they're expecting me to go and do certain things and bring back content for. So it is, it is work. I'm getting paid to yeah. do it. Um, it, it. Never in a million years dreamed that it would kind of happen this way, but, it, but it has, but I think if somebody wanted to get into it, I mean, honestly, it takes a little bit of a leap, leap of faith. I think, Starting out as a side hustle um, is is probably the best way to do it because I'll tell you right now, you're not going to make a ton of money as a booking agent. That's why I don't do it full time. Um, I can't support a family doing that. And it's too volatile. You know, COVID killed everything, oh, right? right? Yeah. Like, can you imagine doing, being just an international yeah, yeah. booking agency during, you, you wouldn't be able yeah. to. Um, and so, you know, like 
taking a leap of faith, you know, investing in in yourself and your experience and, and going and find a place that you're truly passionate about um, and you want to go and try develop a relationship with that outfitter and start to like bring a couple of clients with you um, get some buddies say, Hey, you know, let's go do this Epic hunt together, whatever. Um, and then develop a rapport. Most outfitters are looking for somebody to help send business. And I think little by little, if you continue to do that sort of a thing and reinvest back into it, bring some clients, come home, try to help sell some hunts. Um, that is kind of dipping your toe in the water. That's what I did on accident. And then next thing you know, it's like, oh crap, I got to put together marketing materials to, to advertise this thing. And um, then I decided, well, what am I doing? <laughs> let's, let's reel it back in. I've got yeah, these other yeah. full-time jobs and I scaled <laughs> it back, but I mean, you can, that's the beauty of it. It's like any other side hustle. You can, you can uh, take it as big and grand and scale it huge if you want, or you can, you know, have your handful of clients that you like to work with and, and uh, do it for fun. And so I don't know, there's a million different ways to skin that cat, man. Yeah. Well, basically anybody listening to the pro tip, the, they're always looking for pro tips, right? You know, the pro tip, if you want to hunt more, yeah. everybody always asks that, how do you guys get away with hunting so much, right? Well, you got to make it into some sort of business so you can yeah. justify it, you know, to especially That's the it. wife, you know, if you're dealing with, uh, you know, family and sure. stuff like that. <laughs> And that's, I only say that because my wife doesn't enemy, listen like, to these podcasts. If she listened to them, she'd probably slap me in the face, but you know, <laughs> I've got to be careful. Cause now my wife's starting to listen to some uh -oh. of these ones that I do. She, I walked in the other day and she was listening to a podcast. I was on, it's like, Oh crap. Oh, I didn't say anything stupid in that yeah. one. Um, but yeah, I mean like that, that's it, dude. Like I've built, I've built my career now to a point to where everything that I do in the hunting space, all those cogs fit nicely into the machine. And so I may be, in Africa doing something, or I may be, you know, here in Montana doing something, but there's going to be two or three different businesses that benefit from all of those efforts. And I'm still getting to hunt. It's still work, but I'm getting to hunt. Yep. And so that that's the pro tip for sure, man. Make it yeah, a business. Hunting, yeah. Just make hunting sure you love it. Work. You got to love it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. No, <laughs> never, never. So what, you know, as far as traveling overseas on a hunt, what's probably the, what's the worst part? What's the most challenging part of setting up the travel um would you say um you know especially in today's climate um government it, the governments in each country are changing things often and so being aware and cognizant of the fact of oh you know firearm changes are happening or this airline is no longer allowing you to travel with a firearm in this country anymore um, making sure all your paperwork is done prior to entering the country, that you have the right vaccines like yellow fever. I've got to go get my yellow fever vaccination card uh, before I go into Uganda. Um, making sure all that is set up is difficult because the governments are changing their requirements constantly. And through COVID, it was almost like every other week. It was a nightmare. Things were changing while we were in Africa before we came back to the U.S. And so um, it can be a logistical nightmare in that regard. I think too, um, I mean, that much travel can take a toll. Like I've been into some places in Asia where, I mean, it, we're talking, it was literally three days straight of travel without Damn. being in a bed, sleeping in a truck, sleeping on a plane, finally getting flat in a sleeping bag once we got there sort of a deal. And so um, that, that can take a toll on some people. You got to be mentally prepared for that. Um, but from the travel logistics side, it's just the ever-changing cycle of, this government's now not allowing people to come in to do this sort of hunting. Or I had a client show up to a place and, and luckily he was there to hunt multiple species, but like 
while he was there, the government shut down all hunting for two of those species. And he's like, we, we can't do it now. And he traveled halfway around the world to get there. It's that stuff's out of our control. Um, it's just kind of a risk you take when, when going over there. So I'm assuming probably my listening base, you know, are guys that, that would all love to do these kind of hunts, but probably financially can't go all the time. More or less probably would be a once in a lifetime kind of, of a hunt for some of these guys, you know? So right. What advice, what, I mean, you know, what, if somebody was said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go to Africa one of these days. It's probably, I'm only going to have a chance to probably go once Mm -hmm. in my life. Is there something they should start looking at now? Like what would, anything there to say, okay, this is what you should be looking at, or this is what you, you should be doing at this point, knowing that you're probably not ever going to go back. So you want to make your one-time count. Totally. Um, I mean, I think that the guys that I've talked to the most that are those, Hey, this is a once in a lifetime trip. The common thing that they have all done is they, they decided that, you know, if, if let's just use leopard for an example. Okay. Um, leopard hunts going to cost you all in, probably about $25,000 travel, the whole thing. Okay. So that is on the high side. Now there's some other things that you can go and do like some of the smaller cats. If you want to just go on like a cool predator hunt in Africa, you could probably do it all in for less than $10,000. So you got to remember though, if you're going to go and do that, let's say you put a deposit down two years before you go. Okay. That deposits maybe $1,500, two grand. Okay. So now you're like, okay, well now it's $8,500. Let's say we did a $1,500 deposit. I got $8,500 left. Part of that's going to be my airfare. So a year, maybe eight months from the time you travel there, book your airfare. It's going to be about 1500 bucks. Um, so now you're, you've paid 3000 of your $10,000. You got a 7,000 left. Um, you pay another deposit or so probably three months out just to cover all of your travel or your, um, your hunt days. Um, and then you're just basically the, the rest of it is just going to be, okay, I shot a civet or I shot a caracal um, or whatever small cat, a genet, all these really cool little small cats they have over there. And, and you just pay as you go sort of a deal and it's due at the end of the hunt. And so it's, it's spread out. It's, I think most people they hear, Oh, it's a $10,000 hunt. And they, they feel like they got to cut a check for $10,000 yeah, yeah. right then and there. And it's spaced out. And if you bring those species back, part of that $10,000 number I'm throwing out, you know, you're not even having to pay the the exporter until probably three or four months after the hunt took place and you've already been home. And so it's, it's spread out, which helps some people um, to plan financially for it. I mean, if you if you were to put away $500 a month for however long, two, three years, the trips pay for it. And so, um, or a thousand dollars, whatever it is, yeah, uh, yeah. start a side hustle. It's, it's way more attainable than most people think. And I think a lot of Western big game guys, myself included, I used to think this way. Cause I used to be about nothing but elk there for a while, but I was like, man, I can, uh, you know, I can go and do my own DIY thing. That's how I prefer to hunt elk, but I've got these clients that are spending 10, 12 grand to go hunt elk, which is crazy. Um, and, and they would always ask me about Africa and I'm like, you can go to Africa for 10, 12 grand and shoot like seven or eight animals. <laughs> yeah. And they're yeah. Like, really? It's like, yeah, dude, you can go for like two weeks and shoot seven, eight <laughs> animals. And they're like, I need to go try that. And I was like, yeah, I mean, why not? Uh, and so there's a lot of different ways to go about it financially. If you're a one-time Africa guy, you think you're only going to go once, 
um, just put a plan together, start saving a little bit every month, talk to, talk to somebody like me, go and talk directly to outfitters, um, figure out what that, that payment schedule will look like. And then, and once you map that out, all of a sudden light bulb goes off for most guys. Like, Oh, I can, I can do this. This is achievable. It's probably not realistic that somebody's only going to go once though, is it? Once you go, you're probably like, man, I'm absolutely. Going back. <laughs> <laughs> I've had, I've had clients go, they've, they've, they've said, ah, I just, I don't know if I'm going to like it. I don't know if I want to go. You can look at all the photos and be like, okay, well, most people want to go hunt kudu in Cape Buffalo. It's the reality. Yeah. And they see those and they're like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll go. And I'm just going to hunt maybe one or two of those. I'm like, okay, that's fine. And just know it's all a cart as you're hunting and you're going about your way. Like you can hunt other stuff. Every time you pull the trigger, cha-ching, cha-ching, that's what it means. Okay. And uh, next thing you know, they're like 10 animals into it in the last day. And they're like, so let's schedule to come back in a year or two I, without fail. Nobody ever goes once. And it's like, okay, I got my fill. I'll never come back. I've never heard it in 10 years of doing this. Never had anybody say that. So that's what I've heard addicting. from everybody that I know that's been there. Sure. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm going back or they've been back already. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a cool place, man. <laughs> so we need to, the thing that's always fascinating me about this is this a la carte deal, you know, like you just, I've mm -hmm. I've had guys out on some coyote hunts over the years that have been everywhere in the world, and they start telling me, you know, riding around the truck with them for a couple of days shooting coyotes. They start telling me about these African hunts and how they get over there, and they're like mm -hmm. they they got the itchiest trigger finger ever, and they just start shooting stuff because <laughs> oh yeah, you want to shoot a warthog, you want to shoot this, and then pretty soon before they know it, they're like, oh damn, I shot probably way more, but right. like damn, that was fun. So that that's exactly. based off of that government the government fees that are put in place, right? Like everything has its price. Correct. Um, a lot of it depends on the quota for each of those concessions. Like South Africa is a little bit easier and probably the most economical, um, way more species as well. Uh, the government doesn't get as nearly as involved. So you don't have to go for a, a minimum or maximum amount of days in South Africa. And if, if it's depending on the concession, they get to basically manage the game animals on their property themselves that the government doesn't get involved you start getting outside of south africa and other countries that's where the government quotas come into place um, if they're not issued quota for certain species you can't hunt them whether it's on your private land or not you can't do it and so um most guys where they they really get an itchy trigger figure finger is uh south africa um it's a target rich environment um not saying that the other countries aren't but uh it's easy to go over there and pull the trigger a lot because most of the time there's plenty of game there. Um, very few places. They may not have a ton of one particular species, but they'll have, I've been on places where literally thousands of Impala thousands. Um, What's the record? They need what to just is, shoot way more. So do you have like a client that has the record that went over there and like shot the most stuff? <laughs> like the keep track of like, <laughs> um, oh, this dude shot 57 animals while he was over there. Some crazy number like that. So personally, I, I did have a client go over and shoot 32. Oh, um, and then as a group, as a group, we had a group go and shoot over 100. And this was over like a two week period. This is not hunting. And a lot of people hear that and they're like, oh my gosh, you're freaking bloodthirsty. It's like, well, hold on a second. They were traveling. Like they would hunt one um, hunting concession for three or four days and then move on to a different area with totally different species, like seven hours on another side of the country. Same thing. And they were there for three weeks doing that sort of thing. This, the story I'm going to share is not a personal client of mine, but it was pretty crazy. This was like right as COVID was clearing up and it's called 
2021, 2022. Um, I do not know this guy personally and I won't share names because um, people get weird about stuff, but this guy, (laughs) it was, he's, he's probably the, the most accomplished African hunter alive today. Um, He's hunted just about every species you can on the continent, which goes over 200 species pretty darn easily. Um, when you start counting all the diker and all these, all the different cats and little predators and all yeah. that stuff. Uh, he, I think when he was over there, it was his last trip. It was his last hoorah in Africa. I think he shot like 50 something Cape Buffalo. And I think they hunted over a hundred kudu, just him, just Damn. him, just those two species <laughs> on top of whatever. He was there for like three months and just haunted his favorite countries one more time and just went nuts. Um, but if you got, I don't have that kind of wealth, That's but if wild, you got that man. kind of wealth, you, <laughs> you can go have an amazing experience. So <laughs> pretty crazy. And all that, and people hear that like, what a waste. It's like, yeah, but you got to remember, I think this is important to share. Uh, and I, I may be getting off topic. I'm sorry, but this is important. Uh, I just did a film on this with hippos in Zambia. You, you hear about these guys hunting all these animals and they go, well, well can you bring the meat back? No, you can't because um there's USDA restrictions. We cannot bring wild game meat back oh, into sure. the US. Yeah. So what happens with it? So what happens with it? You got to remember that these are incredibly poor countries, third world countries. Um, you know, there's there are staff for these hunting outfits. They them and their families need to be fed. You need camp food. Okay, so the meat's going for camp food. You're eating wild game the whole time you're there. There's local villages. Um, a lot of that meat gets donated to the local villages and the schools. And, and then there's this whole issue. Once you get out of South Africa and, and start going North with um, the biggest poaching problem outside of rhinos and hippos is actually bush game meat. And these guys, they set snares and they use all these different methods that are indiscriminate. They don't know if they're going to get an elephant or if they're going to get a blue diker, um, female, male, old, young, they have no idea. They're just getting whatever meat they can by using snares. And the problem with that is, is they can't target certain species or a young animal versus an older animal, male, female. So there's no scientific management to the ecosystem and what they're taking. And they do it as fast as they can because they're just, they're just trying to eat. So what happens is you've got these quotas on these hunting concessions, but you're competing with local villages and they're killing everything they can. And you want to deter that. So the way you deter it is you find the best poachers. If if they haven't been arrested, you say, Hey, you're going to stop doing that. We're going to hire you. You're going to be a tracker for us. And then you say, now we want you to make sure nobody else in your village does any more poaching. The guys that are coming in and spending money to hunt here, we're going to use part of that money to help build a new school in your village. We're going to use at least 50% of the game meat to bring back to your village so you don't have to poach anymore. And so you kill multiple birds with one stone there. You're feeding a village. You're helping build new schools and and helping them financially. You're giving them a job and you're taking the best poachers out of the field and putting them on your team. And so that system works really, really well. And all this game meat, now we've been able to manage it in a way where everything's being eaten, but they're not killing, you know, indiscriminately. And and you're not seeing as much waste if, if we have this conservation through hunting method in place. And so... I know I totally went down a rabbit hole. No, there, that's that's but a I great think point. it's really important when we talk about Africa. And whether you're predator hunting there, doesn't matter. That that is vital to the success of hunting in Africa. Yeah. The, as long as they have value, and that's what everybody tells me. As long as those animals have value, 
you know, to exactly. out of country people. I mean, it's it's the best for everything, you know. But for me, you know, personally, at the end of the day, killing is killing to me. I mean, whether I'm killing a coyote yeah. or an elk, whether I'm skinning it sure. for fur or eating it for meat or just throwing it in a ditch, I, I to me at the end of the day, it's just killing, killing. So I don't feel like I always have to justify that. I I kind of preach that as sure. a hunter. I don't feel like we should have to justify why we want to go kill something. I mean, no. but but that's great. I mean, that's man, you're Not right. At all. I, mean, that's I think just, it's uh, it's it's good to know, right? Yeah, because you're right. I mean, there are there are some guys that are probably like me that just like killing stuff and you or whatever. But there are some guys mm-hmm. that I do feel like yeah. they want to make sure it's justified to some extent, which, I mean, that's a great, great example of, of how it should be done, you know. Hey, guys, sorry to interrupt the podcast, but I need to take a second to tell you a little bit about Lucky Duck Predator Calls. Now, if you follow the podcast for any amount of time, you know that's my go-to electronic call. If you're in the market for a new e-call and want to see what Lucky Duck has to offer, you can go to their website, which is luckyduck.com, and you can see their entire lineup of e-calls from the low-end Rebel to the high-end Supervolt. They offer a Predator call that can fit any budget in any circumstance. So check out what they have to offer. You can see some of their innovative features like being able to spin the call in 360 degrees, built-in decoys, and of course, their innovative sound library produced by none other than Rick Paulette. So if you're in the market for a new e-call, Visit LuckyDuck.com to see what they have to offer. Now, back to the podcast. Sure, absolutely. Um, it's been a, a really cool, successful model to see replicated. Just, you know, some people, they don't get it. And, and I'm I'm probably more like you. Like, I, I'm a lot of those animals are pretty darn tasty, to be honest. So I'm always <laughs> excited to go. That's the only place where you can go eat them, too. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's the, the more meaningful side of it, too. Like, there's a lot of gratification and, like, if you, you see some of it in this, this recent hippo film that we did, but to see the excitement and and the appreciation from these people that are like, and sometimes they're starving. Right. And to give them, you know, two weeks worth of meat that they can survive off of. That's a pretty fulfilling experience outside of just pulling the trigger. And so you're getting more than just the, the gratification of going out on and having a successful hunt. It's like, yeah, I did. And I did that for me but there's a certain amount of gratification that comes from knowing you just help some people too. And it's a pretty cool experience. What's uh hippo meat taste like pork. Um, it's kind of chewy and stringy. Um, it's, it's got a little bit of a gamey flavor, but I mean, I think the best way to do it is like, kind of like the natives do there. Um, basically we, we shot the hippo, nothing gets wasted. They eat all the organs, um, everything. And we did a time-lapse as we broke this animal down you've got this hippo on the bank of the river and three hours later, it's just a wet spot that was there. We took everything, took it all into the local village. Um, each kid got like a football size. We lined up all the kids from the school. They got like a football size piece of meat and their family could live off that for two weeks and they cook it in a stew and they keep that stew going for as long as the meat is there and just keep it kind of slowly cooking the whole time. And they've got some sort of method they use and that's how they did it. But we made biltong out of it, which is like jerky. That was pretty decent. We, we had a guy there that he made a valiant attempt at making literally like deep fried hippo nuggets, <laughs> like a chicken nugget, but a hippo nugget. Yeah. Yeah. Those weren't, those weren't great. <laughs> we did our version of the stew. It would, the stew would have been way better had we had more time to let it cook and, and sit, but, um, so it no wasn't hippo the worst ribeyes, thing not like that. but it wasn't the best either. No, we didn't do any steaks or anything like that. Yeah. I think uh, the majority of the meat we gave away were those big chunks. 
that's what we would use to stake. We gave that all to the village. So. Is there like a huge, I, I look at a hippo and I'm like, man, I wonder if there's like four inches of fat around that. Or is it just muscle right out to the skin? Yes. Dude, it's crazy. Like the skin itself is thick, um, like half an inch thick. And then you get into like this, another layer of fat. It's it's pretty crazy. We, I think we did a pretty decent job in the film of trying to show that, like after we cut it open and started to, to process it. Um, but yeah, man, it's like, literally their skin it's it's body armor and the the amount of layers to go through um is pretty impressive um, that's why most hippos your your shot placement is you're trying to get a brain shot um yeah. unless they're on land and then you if you're close enough you can get behind the shoulder but otherwise you're looking for a brain shot <laughs> that's wild so so back to the trophy fees cool. again i was thinking <laughs> of, i was thinking of these small predators again so if i went over there yeah like let's say jackals okay do jackals have this feel? Yeah. Like if I went out and shot 50 jackals on this trip with a guy and red lights and thermal or whatever, oh, yeah. I mean, does each one of those jackals have a fee? Yeah. So there there's, you can go on what's called like a coal hunt and go and coal different animals. Um, now I don't know if there's so many jackals and small cats where you could just go in and shoot like 50, but there's certain guys that are set up um, to go and do this where you could say, Hey, I want to go. I just want to hunt predators. Um, I want to run Caracal, which is almost like I would put it to our equivalent of like a bobcat. Yeah, I want to run yeah, dogs legged. for Caracal. What's the trophy um, on a Caracal? And I want to like 200 bucks. Oh, okay. Jackals are like a hundred dollars. Like, yeah, yeah. You can, yeah, it's, it's not like you're going over there and shooting a $3,000 kudu, um, yeah, yeah. or a $20,000 leopard, you know? <laughs> um, so if you get into the, and there, it's still just as much fun. It's just as much fun. So if you get over there on some of those small cats and doing some night hunting and predator calling and running dogs on, on some of the smaller predators, you can do a lot of trigger pulling and have a totally new experience outside of what we can find here in the U S and baboons, the trophy fees are much more manageable because I've heard baboons are like, hard to hunt sometimes like they're nuisance, but I mean, mm -hmm. does that kind of fall in the same category guys that don't ever really want to shoot baboons or that's kind of like, Oh, let's just shoot one. Cause it's right there. Some people don't want to do it. Some people that's all they want to do. <laughs> so <laughs> depends on you. Um, yeah, yeah. They, they can be very smart. If they've, if they've had any kind of pressure, like once they start getting shot at, they're not stupid. I mean, they're, they can be very tricky and, yeah. and they're kind of, they can be a bit nomadic and, and migratory. Um, if you will, like I've been on certain concessions multiple times in different parts of the year. Sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not. It all kind of depends on what food source and time of year they're trying to get to. And sometimes we hit it just right to where like literally a herd of a hundreds coming through and they're going to be on property, you know, looking for food or whatever it is that they're doing. And so, um, it just kind of depends. And, and, you know, there's different species of baboons in different parts of Africa. Yeah. I'm speaking more specifically to the Southern baboons, but um, they're, they're pretty gnarly animals, man. They're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I've always heard. <laughs> so, yeah, they're pretty so what, another thing that's always fascinated me about Africa, and maybe you talk more about this is access to suppressors. Like it's like a kind of a normal yes. thing over there, right? Like you just can show totally up normal. and just, yeah. do the PHs normally to, have like a, just go a, to the gun store and get one. You just, so you can just right there. No, like, yeah, absolutely. Like how much does I've a suppressor cost in South Africa? Oh, shoot. Uh, it's I'm horrible at math, dude. I'm trying to figure out the number in Rand and oh, how it convert that yeah. to U.S. dollars. It's it's yeah, it's not it's not that expensive. I would say probably a, it's a similar cost to what ours would be here. 
and then you've got the cheaper version over there that are like knockoff. Um, most guys that I that are know they're going back and hunting with the same outfitter year over year over year, they'll buy them there and just leave them and then use them when they're there, sell them to the outfitter, um, you know, if they think they're not going to go back anymore and, and do that sort of a thing because you still can't bring it back. Yeah. But yeah. Um, that's the that's the best way to do it. Uh most outfitters that I've worked with over there, they all have their, their guns suppressed unless you're doing like, you know, big bore stuff with like a three, seven, five or bigger. Yep. Um, yeah. Everything's suppressed. Why, like, why wouldn't you? It's, oh yeah. I was always thinking so just shooting reasons. those big, big, you know, whether you're just shooting a three, 300 wind mag or whatever, you suppress that down mm-hmm. and reduce the recoil. You'd have clients, exactly. you know, I, I see exactly. clients miss all the time with the two twenty three cause they flinch. I can't imagine having guys behind a big gun like that jerking the trigger you know exactly yeah <laughs> there's way more pros and cons for sure and it's not like some guys are like oh well you know they think it's going to be cumbersome or whatever get them like no no you don't understand man like it's a different style hunt over there um it's it's not a problem it's it's the best way if you're hunting with with uh you know if you're not hunting with a double rifle for dangerous game usually you're hunting with something suppressed over there nice nice so let's talk about lions. You'd mentioned something that you've been on a couple lion hunts too. How, how many lion hunts have you been on total? Yep. Um, personally, I've only hunted for myself one lion and I've been on three other lion hunts with clients. And depending on the country, the tactics that you would employ on or deploy on hunting African lion, it, it can vary. It, it really kind of depends on where you're at and what you're doing. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. I love, I love tactics. You know, so, so yeah, let's talk so, about the different ways that they, that they get these lines killed. Yeah. So most of the places outside of South Africa are true free ranging lions in South Africa um, because of the way, if you want to maintain ownership of the wild game on your property, most people put it under a high fence um, animals still get in and out of there. Um, doesn't not affect them like it does here in the U S um, cats included. Now the difference in hunting lion in south africa versus anywhere else in africa and this is where we get into the tactics is it's a little bit easier in certain areas to just track them and to not bait a lot of countries bait lions and so the first few days um if you're if you got a ph worth of salt they've already put in a lot of um scouting they know what's pretty much in the area uh they know there's a big you know solitary cat somewhere um, or at least he's he's making his rounds through that hunting concession on a fairly regular basis. And so you spend a lot of time literally studying the ground, looking for a good track. Um, once you find a good track and think you've got that good male line, some places you can set up cameras, game trail cameras. You'll you'll go and you'll you'll shoot an impala, a zebra, and you'll start baiting different areas where you think these cats may be. Um, some of these, these concessions are like a million acres. And so if you find two or three different good mature tracks, you're going to bait all those cats, get them on camera if you can, and decide if that's, if that's an old enough cat to actually go after, make sure it's a male and, and not, you know, some females that have come through. And so a lot of it's done that way. Um, you, you want to use those game trail cameras and bait so you can really make sure that you're on the right animal. Um, for conservation purposes. And then once you get the right cat on bait, it's a matter of um, setting up, you know, this ground blind um, and making sure that you slip in there undetected. These cats over there are incredibly smart and much smarter than any mountain lion hunt that I've ever dealt with here in the U S. And so um, if you're hunting a baited lion, 
um, you gotta, you have to be very careful. Um, I've heard of, I've heard of guys, the craziest story. I wasn't there, but the craziest story I have from one of the PHs I work with, the dude's got like a sixth sense. He, they, they found this lion, they had him on bait. He was hitting bait consistently. And so they're going to go and get set up in their ground blind they had built and they're going to slip in, in the dark. And so they're making their way into it. And he, he just, he stopped and he's like, I just had this uneasy feeling. Something was off. And so they just, they held up, they held back. They were about a hundred yards as, as daylight broke, they could see it. But that, that lion knew that humans were in the area and he got pissed off and he had totally torn <laughs> apart their ground blind and was laying there in the bushes behind it, waiting for him. No kidding. And so, yeah, it's like, this is where the hunter becomes the hunted a lot in Africa. And that's why I like it. <laughs> it's, it's a level playing field. Like they know they're not stupid. Um, you want to slip in there and be as tricky as possible. But those, those big lines that have been around for a long time, they, they're not dumb. And they, if they sense that they're either going to leave, it's fight or flight with those guys. Um, they sense that you're, that you're in the area, they're going to bug out and they're going to be gone. Or if they're really hungry and they're having a hard time finding food, they're going to sit there and protect that food. And if you're a threat, they're going to get rid of the threat. And it's that simple. Um, but that's how a lot of lions are hunted in Africa. The one I hunted personally, it's kind of a fun story. <laughs> we, uh, we had gotten on a track. We weren't setting baits. We were hunting different animals. We knew there was a good lion in this area and um, cut the track uh, the first day, pursued him for a while, felt like we kept bumping him, got in some really tall grass. So it got dangerous. And we we're like, you know what, let's, let's back out. Let's not put too much pressure on him. Um, we'll come back in, try to pick up a track tomorrow. Came back in, weren't finding a track at all. It's like, crap, we, we may have put too much pressure on him. We didn't, we didn't know if we had bumped him or not. We were just worried that we did. And so we we're on our way out and we, we find the track. It's like, Oh shoot. Well, okay. He is still here. Um, go about the rest of the day, just trying to find him. Nothing jump in the truck and we're like, screw it. He's gone. Let's, you know, there's plenty of other species on the list to hunt and we're driving. And I bet we got half a mile down the road and, and I caught a glimpse of him. And so I start slamming on the hood of the truck. I'm like, Hey, 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 there he is. There he is. There he is. And he saw us and he was running and he went into some real thick stuff and we stopped, got out, got the gun loaded and started trying to kind of come in and, and come at, at from a side angle where we had plenty of clear brush, stay hidden, but not put ourselves in a position where he could be five feet from us and we wouldn't know it. And that year there had been a lot of rain and grass was pretty tall, like waist, waist high. So you could see the top of this lion's mane as he was moving through the grass kind of trying to get across this clearing. And he stopped under this tree and turned around and just kind of sat there. We're like, okay, he's, he's not moving. We waited it out, waited it out. And finally my pH was like, Ryan, let's, let's just get closer and see how close we can get. And I was like, yeah, okay, game on. And so trackers kind of helping us pick our way through. So we're not making too much noise. And he, we get about a hundred yards away and he stops and the tracker's like done. He's not going to go any further. pH is like, okay, let's, Let's start inching our way over there, slow but sure, and see if we can get a presentable shot. And it's, he's like, you need to be ready. He's either going to charge us or he's going to try to get out of here. <laughs> and so there was two other PHs with us, and this is pretty typical strategy. So my PH stood right behind me. I've got the gun. I've got another PH about 30 yards to my left and the other one 30 yards to my right. They both have guns. So he, if he charges, 
one of us is going to have a better angle. I'm going to shoot no matter what. I'm the primary shooter. But for safety reasons, these other guys are flanked on either side. And if he charges me and I miss, they can save my life and, and shoot the cat or vice versa. But he can't charge all of us at once. He's yeah, going to choose yeah. one person and go after him. And so we start inching our way. We get about 80 yards. He stops and he's like, okay, I don't think he knows we're here. You get to 60 yards, stops, and you can see the cat's tail just flicking up above Ooh, the grass. And he's like, yeah, he knows yeah. we're here. He knows we're here. He's like, are you ready? He's like, take it off fire, be on, or take it off safety, put it on fire now. He's like, as soon as he gets up and comes at us, you have to kill him. I was like, okay, that's a lot of pressure. Um, so we're at 60 yards and we sit there and he waits and he waits. he's like, do you have a shot? I was like, I, I can see the top of his mane. I can't see anything. I can't tell if he's turned left, right. I, I can't see the body at all. He's like, let's get a little bit closer. I was like, shoot, okay. So we get to 40 yards. And now you can hear this cat growling. Like, and it's that, I don't know, the lion, it's a big animal, right? It's like a 400, 450 pound cat. Yeah. And you can just hear this rumble coming out of him. It's like, oh man, this is, this is getting crazy. <laughs> and we're at 40 yards. And my pH whispers in my ear, Ryan, he's very pissed off now. Let's go closer. I was like, are you serious? Okay. This is what I'm thinking in my head. I'm like, okay, why not send it? Let's go. And so we get out to about 25 yards and I, I think that the tracker was still trying to come in, but I hear a twig break behind us. And as soon as that twig broke, cat pops up and heads to my right. So he didn't come at me, but he headed to the right. It didn't look like he was leaving. I couldn't tell if he was charging the guy next to me or what, but he took one step. And when he came up out of the grass, I I had a body shot on him and we were able to get a good shot on him and he dropped right there. And that was the end of it. But I mean, it was an intense, you know, 80 yards of closing the distance of having a guy, an expert in your ear saying he's very pissed (laughs) off. Let's get closer over and over. I was like, you're crazy, man. But if you think we can get him, let's get him. And so that that's my crazy lion story. Um, What rifle are you shooting? That way. Um, I was shooting a three, seven, five H and H. Like how big a bullet is that? I feel like that's the best all around caliber. What size of bullet was in that? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It was a 300 grain bullet. Um, The three, seven, five is my favorite all around caliber in Africa, whether it's a tiny antelope or a Cape Buffalo and anything in between, uh, because you can throw a solid or a soft tip in there. And those solids zip right through a tiny antelope and don't, you know, blow Blow up, up. but you can all, you can also get in there and, and, and take like the minimum caliber for dangerous game animals, like um, lion and and Buffalo, et cetera, is a three, seven, five H and H. And so it's just a great all around caliber. So you shot the lion with a soft point. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Soft point. So I, I, it, yeah. So I do, I'm curious. I'm always curious. What did it do to the lion? Like you said, you hit a broadside. <laughs> it was like a high shoulder. Did it like yeah. break his shoulder and just it did a exit out the other side? It was right in that, yeah. sh- right in the shoulder crease. Um, I think it broke down the opposite shoulder um, and, and exited through that opposite shoulder. Lions are, I mean, like most cats, they're, they're soft. It's not yeah. like shooting a hippo or an elephant or a Cape Buffalo. I mean, those things can absorb some serious grain <laughs> like yeah, it's yeah. unreal cats are soft um you know you want the stopping power of at least a 375 on a lion um but uh yeah i put them down right right there um, you they had like me a, shoot it one more time what kind of optic did you have a, but, was it open sights or did you have a little like a one by six or something on there what 
I had a one by four, one by four. on that one. Um, but typically, but typically I, I prefer to hunt open sight double rifles for most of your dangerous game. And it's just that more authentic old school way to do it in Africa. And it makes the addiction that much worse. So oh, yeah. it's a lot of fun. You have to get closer, get them so close, you're, baby. You're getting, having to get closer. <laughs> yeah. It's a different, uh, your senses it's you, you don't get that experience and your senses have never been at that height with any other animals that, uh, that I've hunted around the world. Unless you're when you're 20, 30 yards from an, a lion or a Buffalo or an elephant and they can and want to kill you. If they deem you as a threat, you're more dialed than you've ever been dialed in your life. Cause there is zero room for mistakes. Zero. There's so, a, there's a video out there and like, of a lion in this lion. I don't know if you've seen it. I was trying to remember. It's been a while, since, but this lion charge, like you're, it's almost the same scenario you're talking about. They're kind of spread out a little bit mm. and the lion charges and mm. they, the camera guy, there was a camera guy with him and he's kind of freaking out. So the footage is a little shaky, but the lion, they finally, their shots going off, but somebody finally hits it right in the head. I mean, the lion's like almost on top of him. Yeah. I mean, it killed the lion instantly, yeah. but the momentum of the lion like took the legs out of the guy. I don't know if you've seen that. And he like falls down yeah. and the lion's like, but it's I've dead. It, yeah. yeah. And they're all laughing. I'm like, yeah, they're sure. freaking freaking out, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. No doubt. What's crazy is like, so we see these videos like randomly every once in a while. And for those guys over there, it's just, it's just another day working. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, it's not that it happens that often, but the amount of guy, like, I don't know that I've ever t- like met with a pH that doesn't know somebody that's been, you know, hit by an animal or or died or them themselves. Like it, it's pretty crazy and it is incredibly dangerous. It's not, a, it's not a game. It's not a joke. Um, it's serious business, but um, it happens more frequently than people realize. And uh, one of the PHs I hunted with in Zimbabwe, he, t- I'm going to screw this up, but I'm going to try it. He says, he says, you hunt elephant with your feet because it's, it's a lot of tracking. Like you'll put 20 miles in a day, just track an elephant. So you hunt elephant with your feet, lion with your heart, um, leopard with your brain. Um, and then you hunt Buffalo with your balls <laughs> and that's his saying. And he's, and he could, it could not be any more true. It is a hundred percent accurate because, um, elephant, you're going to spend a lot of time tracking on your feet. Uh, lion, you, you you've got to have a, a lot of, of grit and, and, and a little bit of balls too, to, to, to stay after them. Um, the leopard, it's a it's a freaking mind game. It's the biggest emotional roller coaster of a two, three week hunt you can ever imagine. And it's all in your head. And it's tons of ups and downs emotionally. And then Buffalo, it's it's all balls, man. It's <laughs> big balls or nothing. So it's a good time. <laughs> what uh what's what's a lion hunt look like as far as cost nowadays? Um, so with everything that's happened in the last, um, eight years now, uh, because of the export fees and the government fees, man, you're talking, I don't know that I've seen one cheaper than 40 grand anymore, Um, unless you go to South Africa and, and hunt one there. And then you can hunt it in South Africa, but you can't bring them home. Um, there's some crazy, like five, $7,000 type stuff there, but it's, those lines are typically in, I, I don't like it. They're, they're in, um, high fenced areas, even yeah, 20,000 yeah. acres of high fence. It's just, it's not the same. Yeah. Um, don't get me wrong. I have no problem with people that do it to each their own. Um, but hunting them on a, you know, a million acre concession with no fences is a 
different oh, thing. Yeah, and yeah. so, but those, but those are the most expensive now an exportable line. I mean, some of those places, there's only two or three exportable tags in the entire country in a year. And so they're, they're a hundred thousand dollars. The leopards are way more, um, affordable. Um, and, and to tell you a little bit about a leopard hunt, I mean, typically it's similar as, as lions, you, you, you have to bait those animals. So typically you get there, some guys pay for pre-baiting. So they'll, they'll have a, their pH go and shoot a few Impala and they, they like to hang them up in a tree. And so you want to get them up off the ground. A leopard makes a kill. They're going to take that kill on like a lion and they're going to put it up high in a tree, not too high, but they'll get it up out. Yeah. The yeah. Get it out from hyenas, hyenas away from lions and other predators. Right. And so that's how they protect it. And then a lot of times they'll, they'll try to hide it if they can. And so what you do is you, you get those hung up a few days before you get there and, and you're using game trail cameras again and trying to make sure you got a good mature cat on a tree. Now, when I did this in Zimbabwe uh, a couple of years ago and I, I wasn't successful, um, it was still awesome hunt, but we, we did that. I got there and for the first four or five days, I was shooting impalas and zebras um, and getting our bait set up. And so what it looks like on a leopard hunt every morning you get up and it's like Christmas morning. It's like, okay, we're going to get, we've got like 15 baits set. Let's go and check all our cameras. We're going to drive around for like four hours and check cameras and see what's on there. And then for the first 10 days for me anyway, and I on a 14 day hunt, we did that every morning and guess what? Nothing. It would be a female cat, small male. And so it's like this high, it's like, Oh, here we go. Christmas morning. And you get there and you check all the cameras. You get to that last camera, check the card. And it's like, boom. So, (laughs) and what that means is it's like, okay, so for the rest of the day, if there's other species of animals you want to hunt, you're going to go and hunt. And then that evening, you don't have a leopard to hunt because you got to hunt them right at dusk. And in that case, we could hunt them at night because we were on a private property. And so um, anyways, we were like, well, okay, we're not hunting leopard today. And you would go and check your baits, make sure everything was right. Wake up, do it again the next morning, go throughout the whole day. Like, ah, crap, no leopard. We're not hunting leopard. And so this went on for the entire hunt for me. And we were on a big cat. We saw his tracks and everything. And he was smart, never would jump up in the tree. Never would hit the bait, but you could see his tracks all around the bait. And so there was no way to get in there and do it. But once you do get a big cat in the tree, you would similar to a line, you, you make a ground blind, you get in there. And I mean, it is silent. And, and a lot of times on the, in these countries where you can hunt all night, um, there's different tech out there, but basically a, a red light and it comes on real slow. Um, or you've got somebody with a red spotlight and they try to do the same thing and you've got two or three seconds for the pH to be on him with optics and say, yep, that's him shoot. Or it's over. Cause if he, if it's on there too long, they'll bug out and then game over you've lost. So it, it happens very quickly. It's a lot of anticipation building up and hopes that you get a mature cat on a tree. And sometimes it happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes they get on a tree, not the right cat don't shoot. And you've got a couple of seconds to make that decision. So leopard hunting is an emotional roller coaster and it's an absolute mind screw um we just had a podcast here a couple running. back on that it was about 
this ph and yeah he had some crazy yeah. stories we got real in depth in the tactics oh, sure. setting up the yeah i think it was it was crazy it's interesting crazy to me crazy what those guys do yeah yeah it was wild it's super cool and and those guys just reading the situation and then being like okay because they're sitting there trying to figure this cat out too like why is the cat doing this okay well we need to try this and do this differently let's do a drag let's on and on and on i'm sure this ph covered a lot of the same tactics yeah. but like it it will wear you out mentally more than anything it's not a physical thing it's you you think about it all day you dream about it and you're just trying to figure out how to win this game of chess and it's it's tough i know guys that have been over three and four times before they finally got their leopard they're smart well it's back to the 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 hardest ones to get over there to me it's just yeah that that goes back to the basic just uh understanding of predator hunting like seems like a lot of the guys that really like predator hunting, whether it's coyotes or lions or leopards or fox or bop, it's just that they're at a, just a little bit different level of, of strategy and the way that they approach things. You know what I'm saying? Like that just makes it just adds a little bit to it, you know? Yeah. I think, I think hunting any, any apex predator that, that, I mean, apex predators, they hunt too. And so when you're hunting an animal that is also a hunter, it's a different a totally different approach um and you you're you're set up in and everything uh you, you don't do it the same way as you would a deer or yeah elk yeah or an antelope or whatever so <laughs> more fun <laughs> oh yeah so the last thing i want to talk about you you briefly mentioned something about shooting crocodiles in africa um i would consider yeah. a crocodile a pre- obviously they're a predator but not something maybe on this podcast you consider but but talk me through that i've always I've always felt like that was interesting. I've seen it on, on YouTube and on TV of these guys blasting these crocs and then mm-hmm. fishing out these 15, 16 footers or wherever big they are there. But sure. what, what's your experience doing that there? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I had a client with me in Zambia last year. Um, we, we did more spot and st- stock style on those, but we were in the Luangwa river Valley in Zambia. And that stretch of river has got more hippos and crocs than probably anywhere else in the world. Um, I think it's something like for every mile of river, there's like a hundred crocs in there. It's, it's stupid. Damn. Like you do not go in the water period into story. It, it's a death sentence. You do not go in the water. And so, um, that was a little bit easier. We didn't have to bait. And so basically we would kind of work our way. You're, you're constantly hunting multiple species on, on most of these hunts in Africa. So like we would be making our way along the river, um, but staying out of sight from, any hippos or, or crocs that might be in there that we might want to take a closer look at while we were hunting other plains game species or buffalo. And so you would be going through and, and a lot of times during the day, those crocs will get up and and they'll sun out in yeah, you know, like a sandbar water. or something. Huh? And so exactly. So they'll get up on a sandbar, get up on the bank of the river, and then you can get a good look at them and be like, okay, yeah, that's, that's a big lizard. Let's, let's give him a shot. Um, in other places you're baiting, um, and trying to bait them up out of the water to, to get into an area where you can get a good viewpoint of them. Um, I think a lot of those guys, it's pretty amazing. Like they can tell by the shape and size of their head, how, you know, how big they think they might be from, you know, nose to tail. Um, I don't know how they judge them that way. It's impressive to me, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of, of that. It's trying to make sure you can find them in places where they're out of the water consistently and then um, you want to get a brain shot, same as a hippo. Um, that is the best way to do it. Because if you shoot anywhere else and they go in the water, like if you were to shoot them behind the shoulder, they go in the water, you're never going to find them. Um, you'll never recover that animal. And so you you shoot them in the brain and that stops them right there. 
um, they won't they won't go anywhere. And so that's, they, you you mentioned you're, you're sneaking get along a hundred yards. Like, are if mm-hmm. a croc's on the sandbar, are they pretty spooky? Like, if they see you walking over there hundred yeah. yards, they'll, oh, they'll yeah. dump off into the water right real quick, huh? Absolutely. If you get within, I mean, they're they're not dumb either. You know, like you get within a few hundred yards of them, and they they catch. You know, they they can smell pretty well too. Like anything's amiss, they're back in the water. And, that's crazy they have that good eyesight you wouldn't i just i guess you don't consider crocs having great eyesight but mm-hmm. man huh. they're they can be pretty spooky it's i mean it's belly crawling up to the bank and peeking over and getting set up and just kind of getting getting just enough over to where you can see and get a get a good line of sight and take your shot from there i would assume you're sh- you're shooting those with probably that same like 375 caliber um honestly uh for for that hippo and that croc we were using a 300 wind mag because oh. if you do need to take a little bit longer shot on those um you know that 375 that that projectile is going to have a little bit more drop to it um and a 300 it, it, it's gonna it's gonna maintain you know the velocity over that distance in a more effective way than some of those big bore calibers will because those big bore calibers can even at once you get outside of 100 yards um you, you got a little bit more play there. And the other thing with that, like most guys are wanting to keep the skulls of a croc or a hippo. So you don't want to do a ton of damage on a brain shot. Yeah, so you're trying to like put it like back behind the skull. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. And so there's some thought into that. You start shooting big bores into the skull on those things and it's just shatters it. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Um, for that reason, you go to more like a 300 wind max, something like that. The client you were with, what did he end up getting one? Uh, she, yeah, she, oh, did. she got one. Yeah. <laughs> she shot a, I think it was like, yeah, it was like a 13 and a half foot croc. So oh. it was a nice one. It was a good one for there. Yeah. What's Those the tro- 14, what? 15 footers, man, they're, they're hard to come by. We're how old that like, did the pH talk about how old that croc was probably, or does he even have a clue? Yeah. Yeah, no, they, they definitely um, put a ton of thought into that. Uh, I think they thought that croc was probably somewhere around, I think he said 40 or 50 years old, something Dang, like that. That's crazy. Is what they estimated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, the hippo that I took, um, they thought was probably around 12, 13. But, I mean, as we know, those crocodiles, they, they can get old. Oh, really yeah, old. Those yeah. 14, 15 footers are ancient, ancient <sighs> animals. So, what, What's cool. the uh, trophy fee on a croc? Uh, it depends. So like Zambia, most of the consent, like I've got one place, um, that I take clients to with a pH, uh, the daily rates a little bit better. I think it's a minimum of seven days, daily rates, like seven, $800 a day. And then your croc trophy fee is about 4,500, $5,000. And so that kind of gives you an idea if you were to do the math and then think about some bait animals and Paula and Paula's for 200 bucks, um, get some baits out. Um, and pretty easily can get it done in five, seven days on a croc. If you're baiting. Is that, is that a very popular hunt? Like, or is that kind of way down a lot of people's list? No, I think, I think it is. I think, you know, when you think about Africa, people are, it depends on the person, right? Like, but a lot of people are enamored with the dangerous animals over there. So your big five or in the hippo and, and crocodile case, it's the dangerous seven, which is hippo croc, uh, lion, leopard, buffalo, elephant, rhino. Um, and so those are all the ones that are big and known for killing people. And that's what people want to go after. 
So that dangerous seven, a lot of adventure right. around those. Quick seven math picks. in your head: if I if I hit the lottery tomorrow, if I wanted to go kill yeah. the big seven, <laughs> what am I looking at? Yeah, kind of damage. Uh, you would have to more than likely you'd have to go to two different countries to get all of them because uh, I, I say that. I think the most efficient way to do it, you're looking at at least 28 days, two countries. I'm Break thinking out all calculator. the travel too. <laughs> Man, if I had to, if I had to guess a number like two, 250,000, 250, 250,000. Yeah. That, and that's all exportable. Um, that would be elephant lion. That's about 120 leopard. 140. Buffalo is easy. It's like five. Yeah. Yeah. About 250. Yeah. There you go. You got goals now. Goals. 50 grand. <laughs> Start saving. <laughs> go win the lottery. <laughs> oh, heck yeah. And there's some people that do it. There's some people that would go and do a full, full bag safari over 21, 28 days. Um, go to a couple of different countries to do it all. And um, yeah, I mean, kind it's of crazy. I don't have that kind of coin, <laughs> but uh yeah, it's some some guys do. So it's pretty cool. Heck yeah, well, you gotta have goals, man. You gotta have dreams, right? That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, and I and I'll say with that said, man, like if you would have asked, if I would have asked myself at twelve years old if I ever thought I would hunt outside of Northeast Texas, I wouldn't have thought there'd ever been a chance. So like, don't ever doubt what may or may not happen in your life. I mean, you you never know. I I never dreamed I'd ever get to Africa. And I've been, gosh. 14, 15 times going back another time this year. Yeah, yeah. And I'll go two or three times a year as long yeah. as I can. You just you never know. Pursue those dreams. You, you never know what's going to happen. Heck yeah, man. Well, we're going to shut it down. Before I before I let, let you go, how can people get a hold of you, man? Where can they find you? You talked about your Instagram account. Um, uh, yeah. Other things you do. What's the best way for these guys to find you if they want uh, you know more information on all this? Yeah. So on, uh, on Instagram, uh, my personal account's just Ryan Bassam, R-Y-A-N-B as in boy, A-S-S-H-A-M as in Mary. So Ryan Bassam. And then, um, my email is Ryan at trophy expeditions.com. Trophy expeditions is the name of, of the booking agency. Um, it's to a point there is a website you can, you can go to trophy expeditions.com, but honestly, like we have so much word of mouth business. I, I haven't updated that website in two or three years. It's best yeah, yeah. just to get a hold of me direct. Um, shoot me a DM on Instagram if you want. And I, I'm happy to share my phone number with you. Um, and, and yeah, even if, even if you're in the early planning stages and you think you may not go for three or four years, call me, I, I'm, or shoot me a note. Like I'm more than happy to, to help answer some questions. And even if you're just looking for information that you want to compare to a different booking agent or a different outfitter, I, that's totally fine. Again, I don't make my living doing the booking agency stuff. I genuinely just enjoy being able to help people get on the right hunt, avoid any potential issues. Cause I've made those mistakes when I, when I go and vet certain outfitters where I've wasted 20 grand and that's a hard one to eat. Oh, yeah. um, you come back knowing that never going to send a client there. I didn't even get the animal I was after that's done. And so I want to help people avoid that heartache um, and, and help them have a great experience. So but I appreciate you having me on, man. Um, hopefully, uh, hopefully this has been fun for anybody listening. <laughs> yeah, man. I appreciate you taking the time. It's, uh, I just, yeah, it's just, uh, hopefully, you know, everybody listening, you know, everybody knows about the Africa thing, but hopefully we covered a 
few different avenues, you know, that maybe you haven't heard sure. or haven't thought about, you know, to, to kind of get more details because I'm sure like everybody else, you know, Africa's where it's at, you know, somebody eventually, if you're a hunter, everybody has dreams of going to Africa at some point, you know? Right. Well, there's a lot of predators over there, big and small. So it's, it's worth checking out. Heck yeah, man. Well, thanks again for taking the time, Ryan. Um, want to thank everybody else for listening to the podcast, making this the number one predator hunting podcast out there. Uh, we couldn't do it without you guys. Um, if you're looking for any specific information on myself, you can go to my website, which is coyotecraze.com. Uh, that'll get you links to, to YouTube videos, social media, coyote schools, all that kind of stuff coming up. So once again, I want to thank you guys for listening. Also, need to take a minute to thank the sponsors. Couldn't do it without them. Swagger Bipods, Black Rifle Coffee Company, Cryptech, Lucky Duck Predator Calls, Hornady, Onyx Hunt, Silencer Central, and Sig Sour Optics. And of course the Eastman's hunting journal Eastman's family of, of brands for bringing this all to you guys. So until next time, we'll catch you right here on the Eastman's predator pros podcast.